While I am staying with you at Salisbury, you're terribly alarmed at a threatening communication from a former companion of yours. You beg me to see the writer and help you. I do so. The result is ruin for me. I am forced to take everything you have done on my shoulders and answer for it. When, having failed to take your degree, you have to go down from Oxford, you telegraph to me in London to beg me to come to you. I do so at once. You ask me to take you to Goring, as you did not like under the circumstances to go home. At Goring you see a house that charms you. I take it for you. The result, from every point of view, is ruin for me. One day you come to me and ask me as a personal favour to you to write something for an Oxford undergraduate magazine, about to be started by some friend of yours of whom I have never heard in all my life and knew nothing at all about. To please you, what did I not do always to please you? I sent him a page of paradoxes destined originally for the Saturday Review. A few months later I find myself standing in the dock of the Old Bailey on account of the character of the magazine. It forms part of the crown charge against me. I am called upon to defend your friend's prose and your own verse. The former I cannot palliate. The latter I, loyal to the bitter extreme, to your youthful literature as to your youthful life, do very strongly defend, and will not hear of your being a writer of indecencies. But I go to prison, all the same, for your friend's undergraduate magazine and the love that dares not tell its name. At Christmas I give you a very pretty present, as you described it in your letter of thanks, on which I knew you had set your heart, worth some forty or fifty pounds at most. When the crash of my life comes, and I am ruined, the bailiff who seizes my library and has it sold does so to pay for the very pretty present. It was for that the execution was put into my house. At the ultimate and terrible moment when I am taunted and spurred on by your taunts to take an action against your father and have him arrested, the last straw to which I clutch in my wretched efforts to escape is the terrible expense. I tell the solicitor in your presence that I have no funds, that I cannot possibly afford the appalling cost, that I have no money at my disposal. What I said was, as you know, perfectly true. On that fatal Friday, instead of being in Humphrey's office weakly consenting to my own ruin, I would have been happy and free in France, away from you and your father, unconscious of his loathsome card and indifferent to your letters, if I had been able to leave the Avondale Hotel. But the hotel people absolutely refused to allow me to go. You had been staying with me for ten days. Indeed, you ultimately, and to my great and you will admit rightful indignation, brought a companion of yours to stay with me also. My bill for the ten days was nearly a hundred and forty pounds. The proprietor said he could not allow my luggage to be removed from the hotel till I had paid the account in full. That is what kept me in London. Had it not been for the hotel bill, I would have gone to Paris on Thursday morning. When I told the solicitor I had no money to face the gigantic expense, you interposed at once. You said that your own family would be only too delighted to pay all the necessary costs, that your father had been an incubus to them all, that they had often discussed the possibility of getting him put into a lunatic asylum so as to keep him out of the way, that he was a daily source of annoyance and distress to your mother and to everyone else, that if only I would come forward to have him shut up, I would be regarded by the family as their champion and their benefactor, and that your mother's rich relations themselves would look on it as a real delight light to be allowed to pay all costs and expenses that might be incurred in any such effort. 
The solicitor closed at once, and I was hurried to the police court. I had no excuse left for not going. I was forced into it. Of course, your family don't pay the costs. And when I am made bankrupt, it is by your father, and for the costs, the meagre balance of them, some seven hundred pounds. At the present moment, my wife, estranged from me over the important question whether I should have three pounds or three pounds ten shillings a week to live on, is preparing a divorce suit, for which, of course, entirely new evidence and an entirely new trial, to be followed perhaps by more serious proceedings, will be necessary. I naturally know nothing of the details. I merely know the name of the witness on whose evidence my wife's solicitors rely. It is your own Oxford servant whom, at your special request, I took into my service for our summer at Goring. But, indeed, I need not go on further into more instances of the strange doom you seem to have brought on me in all things, big or little. It makes me feel sometimes as if you yourself had been merely a puppet worked by some secret and unseen hand to bring terrible events to a terrible issue. But puppets themselves have passions. They will bring a new plot into what they are presenting and twist the ordered issue of vicissitude to suit some whim or appetite of their own. To be entirely free and, at the same time, entirely dominated by law is the eternal paradox of human life that we realise at every moment. And this, I often think, is the only explanation possible of your nature. If, indeed, for the profound and terrible mystery of a human soul there is any explanation at all, except one that makes the mystery all the more marvellous still. Of course, you had your illusions, lived in them indeed, and through the shifting mists and coloured veils saw all things changed. You thought, I remember quite well, that your devoting yourself to me, to the entire exclusion of your family and family life, was a proof of your wonderful appreciation of me and your great affection. No doubt to you it seemed so. But to recollect that with me was luxury, high living, unlimited pleasure, money without stint. Your family life bored you. The cold, cheap wine of Salisbury, to use a phrase of your own making, was distasteful to you. On my side, and along with my intellectual attractions, were the flesh-pots of Egypt. When you could not find me to be with, the companions whom you chose as substitutes were not flattering. You thought again that in sending a lawyer's letter to your father to say that rather than sever your eternal friendship with me, you will give up the allowance of £250 a year, which, with, I believe, deductions for your Oxford debts, he was then making you, you were realising the very chivalry of friendship, touching the noblest note of self-denial. But your surrender of your little allowance did not mean that you were ready to give up even one of your most superfluous luxuries or most unnecessary extravagances. On the contrary, your appetite for luxurious living was never so keen. My expenses for eight days in Paris for myself, you and your Italian servant, were nearly £150, Paya alone absorbing £85.' At the rate at which you wished to live, your entire income for a whole year, if you had taken your meals alone and had been especially economical in your selection of the cheaper form of pleasures, would hardly have lasted you three weeks. 
The fact that in what was merely pretense of bravado you had surrendered your allowance, such as it was, gave you at least a plausible reason for your claim to live at my expense, or what you thought a plausible reason, and on many occasions you seriously availed yourself of it and gave the very fullest expression to it, and the continued drain, principally, of course, on me, was also, to a terrible extent, I know, on your mother, was never so distressing. Because in my case, at any rate, never so completely unaccompanied by the smallest word of thanks, or sense of limit. You thought again that in attacking your own father with dreadful letters, abusive telegrams and insulting postcards, you were really fighting your mother's battles, coming forward as her champion and avenging the no doubt terrible wrongs and sufferings of her married life. It was quite an illusion on your part, one of your worst indeed. The way for you to have avenged your mother's wrongs on your father, if you considered it part of a son's duty to do so, was by being a better son to your mother than you had been, by not making her afraid to speak to you on serious things, by not signing bills the payment of which devolved on her, by being gentler to her and not bringing sorrow into her days. Your brother Francis made great amends to her for what she had suffered by his sweetness and goodness to her through the brief years of his flower-like life. You should have taken him as your model. You were wrong even in fancying that it would have been an absolute delight and joy to your mother if you had managed through me to get your father put into prison. I feel sure you were wrong. And if you want to know what a woman really feels when her husband or the father of her children is in prison dress, in a prison cell, write to my wife and ask her, she will tell you. I also had my illusions. I thought life was going to be a brilliant comedy and that you were one of the graceful figures in it. I found it to be a revolting and repellent tragedy and that the sinister occasion of the great catastrophe, sinister in its concentration of aim and intensity of narrowed willpower, was yourself stripped of that mask of joy and pleasure by which you, no less than I, had been deceived and led astray. You can now understand, can you not, a little of what I am suffering? Some paper, the Pall Mall Gazette, I think, describing the dress rehearsal of one of my plays, spoke of you as following me about like my shadow. The memory of our friendship is the shadow that walks with me here, that seems never to leave me, that wakes me up at night to tell me the same story over and over till its wearisome iteration makes all sleep abandon me till dawn. At dawn it begins again. It follows me into the prison yard and makes me talk to myself as I tramp round. Each detail that accompanied each dreadful moment I am forced to recall. There is nothing that happened in those ill-starred years that I cannot recreate in that chamber of the brain which is set apart for grief or for despair. Every strained note of your voice every twitch and gesture of your nervous hands, every bitter word, every poisonous phrase comes back to me. I remember the street or river down which we passed, the wall or woodland that surrounded us, at what figure on the dial stood the hands of the clock, which way went the wings of the wind, the shape and colour of the moon. There is, I know, one answer to all that I have said to you, and that is that you loved me, that all through those two and a half years during which the fates were weaving into one scarlet pattern the threads of our divided lives, you really loved me. Yes, I know you did. No matter what your conduct to me was, I always felt that at heart you really did love me. Though I saw quite clearly that my position in the world of art, 
the interest that my personality had always excited, my money, the luxury in which I lived, the thousand and one things that went to make up a life so charmingly and so wonderfully improbable as mine was, were, each and all of them, elements that fascinated you and made you cling to me. Yet besides all this, there was something more, some strange attraction for you. You loved me far better than you loved anyone else. But you, like myself, have had a terrible tragedy in your life, though one of an entirely opposite character to mine. Do you want to learn what it was? It was this. In you, hate was always stronger than love. Your hatred of your father was of such stature that it entirely outstripped, overthrew and overshadowed your love of me. There was no struggle between them at all, or but little. Of such dimensions was your hatred, and of such monstrous growth. You did not realise that there was no room for both passions in the same soul. They cannot live together in that fair carven house. Love is fed by the imagination, by which we become wiser than we know, better than we feel, nobler than we are, by which we can see life as a whole, by which, and by which alone, we can understand others in their real as in their ideal relation. Only what is fine and finely conceived can feed love. But anything will feed hate. There was not a glass of champagne that you drank, not a rich dish that you ate in all those years that did not feed your hate and make it fat. So to gratify it, you gambled with my life, as you gambled with my money, carelessly, recklessly, indifferent to the consequence. If you lost, the loss would not, you fancied, be yours. If you won, yours, you knew, would be the exultation and the advantages of victory. Hate blinds people, you were not aware of that. Love can read the writing on the remotest star, but hate so blinded you that you could see no further than the narrow, walled-in and already lust-withered garden of your common desires. Your terrible lack of imagination, the one really fatal defect of your character, was entirely the result of the hate that lived in you. Subtly, silently, and in secret, hate gnawed at your nature, as the lichen bites at the root of some sallow plant, till you grew to see nothing but the most meagre interests and the most petty aims. That faculty in you, and which love would have fostered, hate poisoned and paralysed. When your father first began to attack me, it was as your private friend, and in a private letter to you. As soon as I had read the letter with its obscene threats and coarse violences, I saw at once that there was a terrible danger looming on the horizon of my troubled days. I told you I would not be the cat's paw between you both in your ancient hatred of each other, that I in London was naturally much bigger game for him than a secretary for foreign affairs at Homburg, that it would be unfair to me to place me even for a moment in such a position, and that I had something better to do with my life than to have scenes with a man, drunker Déclassé and half-witted as he was. You would not be made to see this. Hate blinded you. You insisted that the quarrel had really nothing to do with me, that you would not allow your father to dictate to you in your private friendships that it would be most unfair of me to interfere. You had already, 
before you saw me on the subject. Sent your father a foolish and vulgar telegram as your answer. That, of course, committed you to a foolish and vulgar course of action to follow. The fatal errors of life are not due to man's being unreasonable. An unreasonable moment may be one's finest moment. They are due to man's being logical. There is a wide difference. That telegram conditioned the whole of your subsequent relations with your father, and consequently the whole of my life. And the grotesque thing about it is that it was a telegram of which the commonest street boy would have been ashamed. From pert telegrams to priggish lawyer's letters was a natural progress, and the result of your lawyer's letters to your father was, of course, to urge him on still further. You left him no option but to go on. You forced it on him as a point of honour, or of dishonour, rather, that your appeal should have the more effect. So the next time he attacks me, no longer in a private letter and as your private friend, but in public and as a public man, I have to expel him from my house. He goes from restaurant to restaurant looking for me in order to insult me before the whole world and in such a manner that if I retaliated I would be ruined and if I did not retaliate I would be ruined also. Then, surely, was the time when you should have come forward and said that you would not expose me to such hideous attacks, such infamous persecution on your account, but would readily and at once resign any claim you had to my friendship. You feel that now, I suppose. But it never even occurred to you then. Hate blinded you. All you could think of, besides, of course, writing to him insulting letters and telegrams, was to buy a ridiculous pistol that goes off in the Barclay under circumstances that create a worse scandal than ever came to your ears. Indeed, the idea of your being the object of a terrible quarrel between your father and a man of my position seemed to delight you. It, I suppose, very naturally pleased your vanity and flattered your self-importance. That your father might have had your body, which did not interest me, and left me your soul, which did not interest him would have been to you a distressing solution of the question. You scented the chance of a public scandal and flew to it. The prospect of a battle in which you would be safe delighted you. I never remember you in higher spirits than you were for the rest of that season. Your only disappointment seemed to be that nothing actually happened and that no further meeting or fracas had taken place between us. You consoled yourself by sending him telegrams of such a character that at last the wretched man wrote to you and said that he had given orders to his servants that no telegrams were to be brought to him under any pretense whatsoever. That did not daunt you. You saw the immense opportunities afforded by the open postcard and availed yourself of them to the full. You hounded him on in the chase still more. I do not suppose he would ever really have given it up. Family instincts were really strong in him. His hatred of you was just as persistent as your hatred of him, and I was the stalking horse for both of you, and a mode of attack as well as a mode of shelter. His very passion for notoriety was not merely individual, but racial. Still, if his interest had flagged for a moment, your letters and postcards would soon have quickened it to its ancient flame. They did so, and he naturally went on further still. Having assailed me as a private gentleman and in private, as a public man and in public, he ultimately determines to make his final and great attack on me as an artist and in the place where my art is being represented. He secures, by fraud, a seat for the first night of one of my plays, and contrives a plot to interrupt the performance.
to make a foul speech about me to the audience, to insult my actors, to throw offensive or indecent missiles at me when I am called before the curtain at the close, utterly, in some hideous way, to ruin me through my work. By the merest chance, in the brief and accidental sincerity of a more than usually intoxicated mood, he boasts of his intention before others. Information is given to the police, and he is kept out of the theatre. You had your chance then. Then was your opportunity. Don't you realise now that you should have seen it and come forward and said that you would not have my art, at any rate, ruined for your sake? You knew what my art was to me. The great primal note by which I had revealed first myself to myself and then myself to the world. The great passion of my life the love to which all other loves were as marsh water to red wine, or the glow-worm of the marsh to the magic mirror of the moon. Don't you understand now that your lack of imagination was the only really fatal defect of your character? What you had to do was quite simple and quite clear before you, but hate blinded you, and you could see nothing. I could not apologise to your father for his having insulted me and persecuted me in the most loathsome manner for nearly nine months. I could not get rid of you out of my life. I had tried it again and again. I had gone so far as actually leaving England and going abroad in the hope of escaping from you. It had all been of no use. You were the only person who could have done anything. The key of the situation rested entirely with yourself. It was the one great opportunity you had of making some slight return to me for all the love and affection and kindness and generosity and care I had shown you. Had you appreciated me even at a tenth of my value as an artist, you would have done so. But hate blinded you. The faculty by which and by which alone we can understand others in their real as in their ideal relations was dead in you. You thought simply of how to get your father into prison, to see him in the dock, as you used to say. That was your one idea. The phrase became one of the many skiers of your daily conversation. One heard it at every meal. Well, you had your desire gratified. Hate granted you every every single thing you wished for. It was an indulgent master to you. It is so, indeed, to all who serve it. For two days you sat on a high seat with the sheriffs and feasted your eyes with the spectacle of your father standing in the dock of the central criminal court, and on the third day I took his place. What had occurred? In your hideous game of hate together, you had both thrown dice for my soul, and you happened to have lost. That was all. 